To understand a city, one must look through the lens of its artists with open eyes, appreciate the personal stories of locals, and sometimes jump on a fast track to have time at popular attractions. Art curator and author Matt Wagner travels the world looking for the tall trees, the artists that stand out and help share our common humanity. I'm trying to make the world smaller each book at a time. As a mother of three, family travel expert Shelley Rivoli says when traveling with babies, it's important to remain calm. One of the most powerful, helpful things you can do as a parent traveling with a baby sometimes is to take a deep breath. Deborah Wakefield from City Pass will tell us how we can visit the top attractions without standing in a long queue. We will travel inside the Middle Kingdom with author Jonathan Geldart to gain some insights into modern China. In the last 10 years, there's been such enormous change. Join us as we explore tall trees of Paris and modern China, learn the art of family travel, and jump the queue at popular attractions. We'll also visit Portland, Oregon, and Williamsburg, Virginia on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, learn how you can save money and get a jump on the long queues at North America's most popular attractions. Then, you may think that traveling with children is not for the faint of heart, but you'll learn how easy and enjoyable it can be. Also coming up on World Footprints, we'll unearth the modern-day truths of China in all its complexity through the voices of those who live there. But first, there's an old Japanese proverb that cautions people about being a tall tree and drawing attention to oneself. However, art curator Matt Wagner travels the world looking for those artists that stand as tall trees. He enjoys meeting local artists with vibrant personalities who bring their communities alive. In his third Tall Tree Photo Book Travel Series, Matt provides a unique view of Paris from a local artist's perspective. So The Tall Trees of Paris, I understand, is your third book in the Tall Tree series. What inspired this book concept? Well, basically, the, the Tall Trees title comes from the Japanese proverb, uh, the tall trees catch as much wind. Um, and in Japan, that's used as a warning, I think, to people who um, stand out. Um, it's, you know, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. And I remember my first trips to Japan, hearing people say that and talk about that, like, sort of cultural concept. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm just the opposite. I want to meet people who stand out. I want to meet the troublemakers in society, kind of, you know. And so I basically name the books the tall trees because that's what i'm seeking out i'm seeking out the people that the artists that stand out amongst uh everybody else in their um, genre or in their group and also i'm trying to expose their culture a little bit to people through these books where you get the questionnaire um where each one of them talks about their you know where they eat where they shop these kind of things 
So not only are you getting these tall trees, the people that stand out, you're also getting a glimpse into their life and getting a real insider uh, tour of their city. So what is it specifically about the three cities that you've uh, focused on in your book series that have resonated with you? I would say in Japan, the thing that mostly what happened in Japan is I I fell in love with Japan. Uh, I went there to visit family who were uh, living there at the time, and uh, I just simply fell in love with it. And I was like, okay, how do I come back here? So the only way to come back was to make a job. So I was already an art curator in galleries here in Portland, and I made the job, you know, working with Japanese artists. And then once I got there, I thought, wow, this is such a limited scope. You know, it's like I could really introduce these people to a much larger audience uh, through a book. So when I went there and did the book, I learned so much about that culture. I mean, I just love the politeness. I love, you know, the way that they exist in this like post-war creative bubble where they're influenced by the West, but also influenced by old Japan. Um, And so that's sort of why I went with Tokyo. And then with Portland, it's my hometown. And same thing. I love this town more than anything. Uh, it's uh, it's the town that <clears throat> allowed me to start a gallery, and I know so many artists here. And each one of them, same thing. There's, I I discovered so many new artists in this town that I didn't even know existed when I was working on that book. And Portland's not a big town. Um, and then I realized that artists are all sort of on the same track. They want recognition. They want to keep improving. They want to be able to support themselves, support themselves in something that I think over time society has deemed to be in the free bin. Um, and so I don't think it should be in the free bin. I think these guys should be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same thing in Paris was a completely different, different story. Paris was basically I'd been to Paris as a tour, as a tourist. And it never really resonated with me that I would want to come back. And the thing with, with like Tokyo and Portland is like, I'm always want to come back. I always want to come back. And so it always bothered me that with Paris, I came to see the museums and I really ignored the rest of the culture. I just was there to see art. And I felt like there had to be something more there that I'm missing. And so even though I didn't know a single (laughs) French artist, I didn't know a single French person. um, That's why I decided to do that one. And of course, you know, my, my uh, 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 predisposition to how they were going to react and treat me was so incredibly wrong. It ended up being that they were just, it was perfect. It was just like Tokyo and Portland, same thing. Artists trying to get themselves out there, artists struggling with like surviving by doing art. Um, and everybody was completely like open and kind and it changed my story. And so now, just like with Tokyo and Portland, I'm madly in love with Paris. Um, and I can't wait to go back. Did you find, though, in your travels through uh, specifically Paris and Tokyo that locals' perceptions of you as an American or how they may perceive Americans may have changed because of your interaction with them? Yeah, I would say that is actually very much true. I think I think people always put up some sort of like force field when they're going anywhere, you know, and I've always been a fan of, you know, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, it's like it's taken me some time to get to that point, but I'm okay with being uncomfortable because I always realize uncomfortable is going to, on the other side of that, is going to be a learning experience. It's going to be something that, you know, I can use later on in life. And so I think people go into things with this shield up. And so 
you know, the Japanese and the French have so many, you know, mis, you know, conceptions about Americans. And I mean, it, in Japan, it was basically like they thought that, uh, you know, there was like a low self-esteem. They thought Americans are great. We have such high confidence that, you know, an art curator or a gallerist would never want to work with us. They would never want to work with the Japanese because we're not nearly as good as them. And that's what I encountered most in Japan. And that always surprised me because it was just the opposite. In many cases, artists at certain ages were surpassing American artists in skill and like how they were being adventurous and what they were doing and how they were managing their business aspect of art. And so I think once they started working with me, I've kind of become this like little uh, international gateway from Japan over here to Portland, um, you know, because they they realize that they can actually show in the United States and that, you know, Americans are open to them. And I would say that's probably the biggest downfall to their pre preconception was that they were a little bit like afraid that, you know, Americans wouldn't like them or, or mm-hmm. Americans wouldn't appreciate their art. And of course we do. Um, and so hopefully that's what they learned from me. I mean, in France, it's the, it's a similar situation, except for, I think the French definitely, you know, I think, you know, we, we, we make fun of a lot in French culture, actually Americans do. <laughs> and so I was, I was very prepared to come there and be the, the, the big dumb American. You know, I was, I'm completely okay with that. Like I said, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. And eventually I know on the on the end of that trip there's going to be something awesome happening and with them that's exactly the same way i'm hoping what i demonstrated to them is that you know the world and it's what i'm trying to do in my books i'm trying to make the world smaller each book at a time and for them to understand that you know we're all in this together we're on the same we're in the same boat and so i think with them they really realize that americans are they, they have the same passions that they have and i feel like I, I made so many good friends over there uh, doing this because I think they realized, oh, okay, you're not, you're not so, you know, you know, you're, you're not so uh, uh, uneducated or or maybe crass or you know mm. something along those lines. I, I would like to ask you to explain how your book is different, or your books, but we're we're focusing on Paris today. How they're different from, say, the. Uh, average photo coffee table book because the the way you format it is very very unique. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're exploring the tall trees of Paris with art curator and author. Matt Wagner. When I went through your book, my impression of it uh, is was that it reminded me of a jazz score. You know, some people may consider jazz music to be uh, kind of freewheeling, uh, sometimes chaotic, but it makes sense and it's beautiful. And that was my impression going through your book. Was that intentional? (laughs) Well, the best part is I'm so happy that you just gave me a talking point for my next (laughs) interview (laughs) because I really love that comparison and I actually have never thought of it that way. 
Um, but the interesting thing is, is I am a big fan of jazz and I've been playing drums since I was eight and I played in jazz bands all as a child. And now as I'm thinking about it, there sort of is that free form, like, you know, it's that like, uh, it's like at any moment, everything could fall apart, but then there's some little underlying thing that, you know, it's like held together really tight and it's going to be this great score at the end. So I, I sort of, I very much agree with you, and I like that, actually, <laughs> that comparison. And yeah, when I worked on the books, I definitely was going for something different. I'm, I, I mean, for me, I love to travel, and I'm an art guy. And so I had to make a book that combined those two things. And in the art world, monographs seem to be the most popular form of uh, art book out there. It's standard coffee table book with just a bunch of images in it, not much, you know, cultural or textual content to it. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, travel books seem to be following into this line of like, you know, and, and rightly so, they should. They're educational. They're like, you want to go to see the Palace of Versailles? This is the train you should take. This is how much it's going to cost. And they're very specific. And they're also casting a really, really big net because they're trying to incorporate everything that the mainstream tourist would like in a city. Well, I always feel like I don't do anything mainstream when I travel to these countries. I usually stay there for a month or so at a time while I'm working on projects. And I'm rarely doing tourist things. I'm much more hanging out with artists and creative directors, going to dinner and doing things that they do. And so I wanted to incorporate that travel element into it. And then secondly, I didn't want to just have like one artist monograph. I wanted people to be able to get to know like, 20, 30, 40 artists. So I think that's where the questionnaire comes from. The questionnaire is the connector. The questionnaire is basically the travel. So if you're wanting to go somewhere and eat and you like this person's art that you've just seen, you might be like, oh, that that might be a good place for me. And chances are it's not going to be listed on Yelp or any of these other sort of apps. It's going to be something really pretty deep and underground. And then at the same time, you're still getting the coffee table art book. So you read the questionnaire and the questionnaire is like your handshake. It's like your introduction to the artist. And then you turn the page and you see their art. So the questionnaire has nothing to do with art. No questions about art whatsoever on it. I want you to get the note of the person. Mm -hmm. I want you to understand who the person is, where they shop, where they eat, like even their sense of humor by the way they write. And even like how messy their writing is or if they actually doodled or what they did. Then when you hit their pictures, you sort of like, you're like, oh, I totally get this person. And then you hopefully you fall in love with their pictures. So yeah, I would say the layout of the book is pretty unique compared to most travel and art books. I hate to use the word eclectic. But uh, um, I would say the book is that it's a mix. Um, There's, and it also has a lot to do with the culture, the culture in Paris is kind of split between two major popular forms of art. One being street art, which is now popular all over the world, but the other being illustration. So the the book is very heavy with illustrators, um, mostly in the book. And there are like some street artists in there, but there's also oil painters. There's also conceptual designers. Um, so for me, it may not always be my the my go-to genre in art. But you can absolutely be guaranteed that everybody that's in this book is someone that I absolutely love their art and respect what they do. And I sort of put on like a filter 
the filter is I don't really care what their label is. I don't care what someone's labeling it or how they're being labeled. I'm more interested in them as a person. And then if I like their art and I try to like strip off my curator hat and basically just look at them as people and me liking what they generate. What did you learn about Paris through your exploration of the various artists' work uh, that you did know before? Well, I would say the one thing is, is more importantly, I learned that this is going to sound very strange because obviously traveling in Japan, I understand that the world, people are alike everywhere. But for some reason, I think because of our preconceived notions about the French, that I thought maybe they would be different. Maybe they would be like rude or maybe there would be these kind of things. And I would say that's the one major thing I learned is that just everyone is, we're all alike. Human beings on this planet really boil down to being a really similar, similar attitude. You know, everything else is like cultural influence that really can be shaken off quite quickly when you get down to human to human contact with someone and speaking about their art and speaking about their future. To learn more about Matt Wagner's Tall Tree series of books, visit Amazon.com or his gallery page at HellionGallery.com. We will also have links on this show page at WorldFootprints.com. Destination Spotlight, we will explore Portland, Oregon with art curator and author Matt Wagner. I've lived here for over 20 years. Uh, my wife and I came here and we started businesses. My wife's a jeweler and I run an art gallery. And there's not too many cities where like just some young kids fresh out of college pick up all their belongings and move to a city and with no money can basically get a house get a life started, and start businesses. So for me, that's the thing I've always loved about Portland. It's always fostered um, entrepreneurism and new ideas. I mean, granted, some of the new ideas push the envelope into being a little ridiculous, which, you know, that's hence why that Portlandia TV series uh, was made, because we are accepting of all comers. We're accepting of everything. But for me, that's the true thing about Portland that I love. It's just open and you can do anything here. It's just for anybody to do anything. And I really, truly love the fact that one of our number one tourist destinations is Powell's Books. Uh, you know, other cities have, you know, uh, uh, you know, they might have a roller coaster. They might have a monument. They might have, you know, amusement parks. They might have, like, you know, some museum or something that is like a pretty standard tourist um, thing. Here in Portland, if you ask anybody what our number one tourist uh, attraction is, they're going to say Powell's Books. And I think that says a lot about our city is that a bookstore is our number one tourist attraction. And it's true. I love that bookstore. And everybody who lives here loves that bookstore. And, 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 it's, and it's fantastic. And so I think if you're coming here, you definitely need to go to Powell's Books. You definitely need to go to the Japanese Garden and the Rose Garden 
Uh, we have the International Test Rose Garden on the hill, and it's just beautiful. You just, you won't believe it. It's just like, it's, it's as if you're like being immersed in a 3D computer program, but it's real. It's like this incredible colors. And then the Japanese uh, um, uh, garden up there is one of the only like sort of sanctioned garden from the emperor of Japan um, in the United States. Well, most of the Japanese gardens are just you know, sort of like done with like Japanese gardeners working on it and architects, but this one was actually designed by the Imperial Gardener in Japan, and it's amazing, amazing garden. Shelley Rivoli has always loved to travel and she really enjoyed writing. But no one was more surprised than Shelley that she continued travel and writing even after becoming a mom. When her first daughter was only seven months old, Shelley, with husband and baby, ventured off to Thailand and that began the start of her family travel chronicles. Today, Shelley shares the art of traveling with children on her award winning websites. TravelsWithBaby.com and FamilyTravel411.com. I started out as a writer before kids, a writer who loved to travel, and um, no one would expect this to happen, but for some reason after I had my first daughter, um, the travel and the writing actually came together as impossible as that might seem. (laughs) Um, And so by the time my daughter, my first daughter, was seven months old, I was not only working on a book um, about traveling with babies, but I was traveling with her and my husband in Thailand, of all places. So, <laughs> Wow, with a seven-month-old. With a seven-month-old. She'd already flown cross-country at that point, and um, yeah, so we were learning the ropes and doing um, a lot of R&D, I guess you could say. Learning the real questions that parents ask when preparing to travel with little ones. Um, trial by fire, sort of. But yeah, that that definitely brought us into what the real questions are that mm-hmm. you need answers to. And I couldn't always find those. How it started out and just getting getting the info people need, uh, whether they wanted to travel for pleasure with mm-hmm. um, their babies and toddlers, or in some cases, it, it might be for an adoption. Mm-hmm. And you'd have brand new parents, brand new baby, and international travel um, and all sorts of things like that. So I just wanted to compile the best collection of tips and advice I could for people traveling with those kids under five, basically, um, to help them have safer, mm-hmm. easier, and definitely more enjoyable travels together. <laughs> and so we're going to fast forward a little bit because now you're traveling with three, three kids. over five. Yeah, all over five now. They're <laughs> 13, 11, and eight years old now. So yes, we've uh, we've put some miles on and <laughs> added a few, a, a couple extra people to the picture. Um, and another... Um, website so I I had started travelswithbaby.com um, to go with the travels with baby guidebook that I did and of course as my children got older um, our adventures changed a little bit and the focus of some of our travels um, 
And so I started a second website, mm-hmm. familytravel411.com, <laughs> um, so that can focus more on um, experiential and educational travel with school-age kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to go back now a little mm-hmm. bit to... Um, Pre-mom Shelly. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> and, and, and just the, you know, the travels that you experienced mm. as an adult and what that meant to you personally and maybe the mo- most memorable travel mm. experience you had. When I was 17 years old, uh, I had never set foot on an airplane before that, although my kids got a very early start, obviously, compared with me. Um, but when I was 17, my brother was living in Prague, and this, okay, I'm going to reveal a little about my age now, but this was 1991, (laughs) and there were not a lot of Americans in Prague at that time, Um, and he was there teaching English, so my mother, bless her heart, uh, somehow was able to get us tickets to go visit over uh, my winter break for school, so not only was it my first flight, but we flew all the way from Portland, Oregon mm. to Prague. And as I recall, the the last airplane was, uh, I call it a rattlecraft. Uh, it was still very rustic. And uh, coming into the Prague airport was quite thrilling in winter weather. But that was just an incredible trip. We were there about two weeks. And at that time, we, even being out, seeing all the major sites in Prague, never encountered another American mm. besides my brother. Which, of course, you go to Prague now and, and you can't avoid Americans or, or travelers from many other places. So it was a magical trip for sure. We got to stay with a family that he knew and meet lots of friends. And I picked up a little bit of Czech and it was just such a magical experience. I'll never forget it. Do you feel that helped you grow? And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And I was having not only culture shock, but city shock because I didn't have any big city experiences. And so here was my brother showing me how to take the tram and the metro in Prague of all places. So um, that was fun. But also historically, what a time. And mm-hmm. so many of his new friends there that I got to meet who were very excited to use English, uh, were working on English, they were there, you know, at the at the Velvet Revolution. These were the students, you mm-hmm. know, at that time. And so, yeah, to be submerged in this and be seeing it through their own eyes, and it was just quite a moment in time. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I count myself so lucky to have been able to do that. And so today with your, your children, knowing the impact that travel has had on your life. What is your hope for your children and how travel may impact their life as they continue to grow and go into adulthood at some point? One of the things that uh, is is important for any traveler um, certainly applies to children, and that's just uh, opening your eyes to how people do things differently in other places. And that can be other places in the United States. Um, That can be parts of Asia, parts of Europe, parts of Central America. I want my kids and all of them out there to 
to have a, a well-rounded view of the world and how we want to fit into that picture. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things a, um, a parent mm-hmm. with a youngster should know. Oh. Every situation is so different mm-hmm. and each child is so different and, and very importantly every parent can be very different from the next. Um, but I think one thing that really does arch over all of this with importance is for the parents to be able to stay calm, to think about that. No matter what comes up, uh, waiting for a plane, on the plane, uh, in the hotel room or the tent or wherever you go, um, especially with babies and very young toddlers, they really sense your vibe, you know, what's going on with you. And even if you might just be feeling a little crabby or, or tense, you're not happy about a flight delay or something. They pick up on that stress from you more than you might realize. And so one of the most powerful, helpful things you can do as a parent traveling with a baby sometimes is to take a deep breath and stay calm. To receive more tips about traveling with children from infancy through the teen years, visit TravelsWithBaby.com and FamilyTravel411.com. We will also have a link to Shelley's websites at worldfootprints.com. to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we will jump long queues at some of the top attractions in North America with City Pass, and we'll explore Williamsburg, Virginia, beyond the history. And later, we'll go inside the Middle Kingdom to gain some insights about modern-day China. If you want more travel experiences beyond this show, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. ways to see the top attractions in some of the most popular North American cities like Toronto, New York, Dallas, Boston, or Southern California without having to stand in a long queue or pay a lot of money is through a city pass. On a recent visit to New York, Ian and I used the city pass and we were surprised at how much money we saved to see attractions like the Empire State Building and the 9-11 Museum. It was also nice to save a lot of time that we would have normally spent standing in a long amusement park-like queue to fast track our way to the attraction so that we would have time to see something else. What is city pass? Deborah Wakefield explains. Deborah, what is City Pass? 
It's really the best way to see the top attractions in a destination. Um, it's a booklet of tickets. So these are your actual tickets. You skip that ticket buying line when you go to the attractions and go right on in. And we only invite the top attractions in terms of out of town attendance to be part of the pass. So especially if you're a first time visitor to say New York or Boston or San Francisco, you're going to be uh, ensured that you will see the top attractions. You won't miss anything that's really a big name marquee type attraction. So what cities is City Pass valid in? Well we have 12 destinations now. We just added Dallas last year, the Tampa Bay area the year before, and then we also have Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, uh, Houston, New York City, which is our most popular pass, and um, Seattle, San Francisco, Southern California, which is more of a theme park pass, includes the two Disney parks, SeaWorld and Legoland, California. And then we also have Philadelphia and Toronto in Canada. Oh, and Seattle, yes. (laughs) The attractions uh, that you have tickets for in the City Pass package, are they a mixture then of family and adult attractions and activities? They are. It depends on what are the most popular attractions for a particular destination. Obviously for Southern California, that is a huge family pass. Um, Primarily the people who buy that have younger children to to tweens um, because you're going to the two Disney parks and, and Legoland. In New York, it's a little more grown up. You know, we have the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Empire State Building, uh, the Guggenheim Museum, Statue of Liberty, and Ellis Island. So it's a it's a mix depending on which destination you're looking at. But most of our cities, we will include the aquarium if there's an aquarium, and the zoo if it's a really top-notch zoo. What then differentiates uh, City Pass from, say, the the ticket kiosk that one could find in a city like, say, New York? Well, our pass is more of a curated experience. Um, Our two owners actually invite the top attractions to be part of the pass. You can't just call up and say, hey, I'm a new museum. I'd love to be on the pass. You have to be invited. And we limit it to no more than six tickets per destination. There are other passes where there might be 40 or 50 different attractions. And you can purchase either one, three, five, or seven-day pass. And then as many attractions as you can sprint through during that time period you get to see but our owners very specifically didn't want people to go into say the Metropolitan Museum of Art and rush through it I mean it's a you should you should spend an entire day there really taking in all the galleries appreciating what's there and never having to look at your watch and say oh my gosh I have to get out of here and go to the next place to make sure I get the value out of this pass. So it's designed to be more of a um, curated, relaxing, no stress experience. It's, It's one purchase, you have all your tickets, you then never have to deal with money or, um, purchases at the ticket window you've got it all right in your hand get to skip the line so you're saving time and then all of the passes will save you between 40 percent and 52 percent off what it would cost to purchase each ticket individually Um, and that goes for all our destinations except southern california where the discount is 30 percent so if i if i understand correctly a ticket if i were to go to moma the metropolitan metropolitan museum of art um, today, 
or, or tomorrow, uh, use the ticket, is it just valid then for that one visit? Correct. The passes are really designed for visitors to a destination, not for locals. So each ticket is one entry. And once you've used it, then it's it's invalidated. And once you've used the first ticket in the booklet, you have nine consecutive days to use all the remaining tickets, which is, you know, it's a good time period. It gives you a whole week and, and two weekends. So you don't, again, no rush. And what if I purchased a a pass tomorrow and then had to leave town and not return or be able to return um, for two months later? Would the booklet that I purchased, the passes still be valid then? No, it's uh, the nine-day validity period. Now, if you haven't activated the first ticket, the booklet will be valid for at least one year. But once you use that first ticket, then the nine-day countdown begins. Now, if you have to leave town because of a personal emergency or um, a big snowstorm came up and everything's closed, or we've even had um, National Guards people who were called off to duty, we will refund the unused, or the cost of the unused tickets in the booklets. Our customer care team really takes care of our city pass users. We want people to be happy because if you're happy with the experience, then you'll come back to us again. I understand that your one international destination is Toronto. Are there plans to expand uh, across Europe or other countries? We're always looking at new destinations. We have a team of people who do that, and we don't have anything definite yet. But we are constantly looking, especially in Canada, because they're such a close neighbor. And so, and how would somebody purchase their pass uh, online, or do you have a kiosk in some of these? Forgot. <laughs> That's a great question. You can purchase it online if you're like me and you have to have everything planned in advance before you go. You can go online and purchase it. We ship anywhere in North America, either to your home, your office, or your hotel. Um, we also ship in Western Europe too. Or if you're a little more spontaneous and you just want to show up, you can buy it at any of the attractions that are included. They all sell it at their ticket windows. And most of our um, destination partners will sell it in their visitor information centers or on their visitor information website. At the discounted price? Yes, it's always the same price. It never it never changes. Mm-hmm. And what is your website? It's www.citypass.com. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) To learn more about City Pass and the destinations it serves, visit citypass.com. We will also have a link to that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, we'll experience more than just history in Williamsburg, Virginia with Karina Ferguson of the Greater Williamsburg Chamber and Tourism Alliance. There's a lot more to Greater Williamsburg than that history. History is the core. It's fantastic. 
and and it's really exciting now because there's so much more they're doing with the history and making it engaging and hands-on and and all of that but in addition to that there's beauty there's outdoor activities there's kayaking you can kayak greater williamsburg is smack in between the james river and the york river and it's a whole i think 20 minutes from one river to the other so it's pretty easy to get to both areas for kayaking boating sailing fishing if you're interested in that golfing we have go ape which is a treetop adventure course um so the outdoors is definitely something that people don't necessarily think of, but makes for a great addition to that vacation, whether you're a couple or on a romantic trip or a family and you need to get the kids to burn off a little bit of extra energy. We also have Bush Gardens Williamsburg, which I think some people sometimes forget is actually part of Greater Williamsburg. Um, and that's a fantastic park, great opportunity for some beyond history opportunities and then for those of you who really like the history or think you need to expose your kids to it and they're going to mutiny on you bring them to revolutionary city which is actually live performing art more so than history or play RevQuest, which is a spy game that you have to play with your cell phones or you can go to historic jamestown and actually talk to the archaeologists while they're uncovering relics from 1607 1608 and actually be there at that instant that something is found so just there's just so much that you could do in greater williamsburg mysterious country, and it remains an enigma to many. It is often misunderstood, mischaracterized, or vilified by the media. Others celebrate China's innovation, culture, and heritage. But perhaps the truth lies somewhere in between. As one who misperceived China and later found that his initial beliefs about the country did not validate his experience as a foreigner living there, author Jonathan Geldhart provides a deeper appreciation for China through his personal stories and those of Chinese citizens. Jonathan Nihalma. Hey, that's about the 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 length of my uh, my Mandarin. I can count to five. Um, so tell me, how did you end up in China? Around about seven or eight years ago, I had to travel to a conference in Shanghai, and at that time, uh, as part of my job, I was speaking at that conference. I had an opportunity to have a few hours, and I walked out onto the Shanghai street and was immediately afraid of everything around me. Uh, it was so strange, so different, and yet beguiling and intriguing but a little bit fearful that time so that's how I first uh, came to China mm-hmm. and you know it's funny I was going to ask about your perceptions as a Laowai uh, foreigner um, you know how they were when you arrived or before you arrived and certainly how they may have changed during the course of your time there 
I think even in the short time that I've been going to China, there has been enormous change. And I think that's one of the things that people who don't have the opportunity to travel in China, to visit China, uh, don't appreciate. Uh, not only has China uh, come out of the Cultural Revolution and uh, the history of the emperors in living memory, but in the last 30 years, and particularly even the last 10 years, there's been such enormous change, and the people have reflected that. And yet in their hearts, the people of China are just as hospitable, just as kind-hearted, just as thoughtful uh, as they always have been. What was your inspiration for Inside the Middle Kingdom? It's quite a simple one, really. I found that as I went to China, I got a lot of stories from people who had never been there, but had an opinion. And those opinions were quite negative often. They were often uh, around politics. They were often around human rights. They were often around uh, perceptions that I would, I felt that, that were wrong. But when I was there, I didn't feel those perceptions, I didn't have those feelings. And what I found was that when I talked to the, the normal people, the people I worked with, the, 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 their fathers, their mothers, their, their daughters, uh, their, their sons, uh, and all their family, then it was a very different China that struck me. And I thought, you know, there's a, there's a real truth here that needs to be told. And I just wanted to reach out and, uh, if you like, tell the truth about China. Jonathan told us that Westerners who were not familiar with China had a negative view of the country. So we asked him what impression Chinese people who were not familiar with Westerners had of us. When I spoke to people in China, at first they were very guarded. They felt they were unable to say much. Uh, they were motivated by um, one of the deep-rooted things about the Chinese is, is an inherent politeness. Uh, they get on quite well with those Brits. We're, we're quite polite as well. We're known for having understatement. If there are lines to read between, the Chinese will read between them much as we Brits do. First, it was quite a tentative set of conversations. They didn't go deep. But as I... Uh, really engage with people, spend time with them. They opened their hearts uh, and their stories uh, and their lives to me. And it was, it was really humbling in the way that people felt able to, uh, to talk to me and to want to tell their story in the knowledge that their stories would be going to the world. Jonathan interviewed a vast number of people for his book, and not every story was included. So we asked him about the selection of the stories that he did publish. Oddly, they were self-selecting. Once uh, people knew that I was writing, uh, then the people I interviewed said, oh, um, I have a friend who's maybe interested in, in talking to you. Or, and then that friend would say, oh, I have my mother. You know, she may be interested in talking to you. And, and that's how it became, it sort of snowballed. And I had many more conversations uh, than the ones that are, that are in the book. Um, and they, they vary from people who were proud to be uh, party members in the Cultural Revolution. There's a story about a lady who was in the Red Guard. Um, and she proudly uh, said about how the party had been everything to her. Uh, there are stories from, uh, from a lawyer uh, and his mother. Uh, his mother who's seen great changes in China, but is proud of the changes that eventually made their home in, uh, in Hangzhou, in southern China, uh, be demolished uh, in order that a railway, uh, the new railway station could be, could be built there. Uh, so they were self-selecting. And once people realized that I was genuinely putting forward their words, it's not my opinion, it's their words about their lives and about their China, 
really they opened up their hearts and their stories to me and uh, they self-selected. Now is there a most memorable or funny story that really struck you as you were going through this interview process? The funniest I think is probably the lady who used to be a member of the Red Guard and um, the reason for that was we uh, we arranged through an intermediary in fact to meet in a coffee shop in the middle of Beijing not far from where she lives and um, so I duly arrived and uh, and uh, sat down and uh, the lady arrived and she arrived with a with a little trolley bag and um, and, and a bottle of water and uh, I said oh you know can I get you a drink can I buy you some tea and she said no 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 I have my own water I don't like to spend a lot of money but you must go and buy something because <laughs> then we will be allowed to sit here Oh, okay. I said that's fine. So I I went and bought something, and then when I came back uh, with my uh, my uh, obligatory coffee uh, and sat down, uh, and then she'd opened up in front of her uh, a little book, and in that book was uh, was music, and then she burst into song, and she started singing in the coffee shop loudly, <laughs> very proudly. She sang, and everybody in the coffee shop suddenly, not surprisingly, started to move away from our table. And as politely as I could, I encouraged her, maybe, maybe she'd like to stop singing. And she was quite surprised that I would wish to stop singing because she said this was a very famous song that was loved by Xi Jinping's wife. And she sang this regularly in Ritan Park, which is a local park that I know. And um, she was surprised that I didn't want to hear her sing. Anyway, I really had to stifle a smile and encourage her maybe to tell her story rather than sing to me. But that was a, a really memorable occasion. <laughs> well, hopefully she sang in tune. Oh yeah, she sang it very. Actually, she sang very, very, very well. Uh, I could have listened to her, but I probably could have heard her about three blocks away. She she sang loudly. Now, there, there's a character that you've referred to um, primarily in the introduction of your book, Dong the Destroyer. And my question is: Is he the same Ji Dong whose photos appear on this show page? With your interview, it, he is indeed. Ji uh, 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 Dong or Dong Ji is has uh, now become a great friend. He he, uh, wonderful photographer, uh, very proud of the photographs he's taking of the old hutongs. And the reason he's taking those photographs of the old hutong is the reason that I gave him the nickname Ji the Destroyer, or Dong the Destroyer, because he was the man that had the authority to essentially sign the death warrant of most of the old Beijing hutongs. So he was the person that wielded the hammer and took the bulldozers in to many of the old Hutong areas of Beijing. And the way he's reconciling what he feels was uh, probably uh, sometimes inappropriate destruction, uh, and you can read about that in his story, um, he wanted to record uh, for posterity uh, how the Hutongs are, the life of the Hutongs. And um, it's a very um, a touching story uh, to, to talk to him. And, and I've, I've grown to be uh, really we've grown to be good friends. He, he now owns a tea shop there and uh, really is a devoted himself to Chinese culture. Um, but yeah, Zhang Dongdi, the destroyer, was the guy who destroyed, was responsible for destroying most of the hutongs in central Beijing and is now recording them for posterity. A hutong is a small lane within a courtyard that was originally built around a water well during the Yuan Dynasty. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we continue our conversation with Jonathan Geldar. What do you want your readers to take away from the book? Uh, I guess three things. Firstly, I hope that they will feel like they're looking over my shoulder, listening in to the, the real truths of the, the people in the book. That they will. So, firstly, it's about the drawing out the truth of 
the lives and the experiences of these people. Secondly, it's opening up their minds maybe to thinking and, and viewing China and the Chinese maybe differently. To put aside some of the myths and legends that exist, I have to say through uh, much of the Western media that China is trying to take over the world, that China is trying to do this, do that, do, do the other. And I think listening uh, to the stories and the lives of the ordinary Chinese people, that will change perception. And I think thirdly, I really, really hope that people will reach out and, and take the opportunity to go there. Um, it's been an amazing experience for me. Uh, I, I have to say it's got under my skin. I do spend a lot of time in China, but I would encourage people not just to go to the normal places, the Terracotta Warriors, the Great Wall of China, the, um, the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, but to just go a little bit off the beaten track. And a little bit off the beaten track, you find an amazing array of people, amazing places, and talk to the people. that They want to talk, uh, even through an interpreter, they want to talk, they will talk, and you will, you will learn so much. Uh, so I would say, go there. In Jonathan's quest to share a different truth about China, we asked him if he uncovered a universal truth within the stories, and we also asked him what his truth was. The truth that came through to me from all of the uh, interviews was a heartfelt um, uh, and deep desire for Chinese to be able to reach out to the world and for the world to recognize the Chinese are basically a peaceful people. That came through time and time again. Uh, the, the desire to be at peace, the desire to have a happiness as a priority in their lives and a desire to, uh, to want that and to be part of that in the world, to not to uh, want to have negative stories, but to genuinely, and, and, and the people are very genuine, to want to reach out and, and uh, in, in a hand of friendship. And I think the truth for me in China is a very personal and deep truth. I, I went with a lot of prejudice. Um, that prejudice uh, came from a whole bunch of sources. Uh, it's still difficult sometimes to do business there and to interact there undoubtedly the culture and the language and everything and the history sometimes overcome even me and I've spent a long time there. But I think the uh, the thing that I've found for me is that um, I need I needed to, to understand and the truth for me was that having spent time there I no longer look at China just through the lens of a Westerner. I try to look at China through the lens of the people of China, the Chinese themselves. Jonathan Gelthard is the author of Inside the Middle Kingdom, Insights into Modern China. Jonathan Shishini. We have a link to the Amazon page where you can learn more about Inside the Middle Kingdom, Insights into Modern China on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Matt Wagner described Paris in the focus of his book and certainly you know when I think of Paris I think of the artistry and all the architecture and I I have such a love for that city it was really interesting to hear that it took him a while to develop a love for Paris what do you remember your first trip there I do it was uh, back in 1995 and I actually made two trips to Paris that year and I spent a total of three weeks in Paris but I was always struck by Paris from its architecture me being into architecture as a place that we would really never see built ever again like this just because of uh, the uniqueness of it the density of it just the attention to detail and to me that makes Paris interesting that makes Paris romantic it, it just gives it a feel that you don't have in 
a lot of other places. I think that's why it really is one of the quintessential unique places, must-visit, bucket-list places. And, you know, speaking of romance, but for that trip to Paris, we... I would never have agreed to meet you, and so we, we may not be married today. And so uh, Paris really is a city of love. And speaking of love, it really takes a lot of love for, for parents to travel with their children. I mean, how many planes have you been on where children are screaming and crying? It, it's hard work. And Shelley, bless her heart, has really perfected the art of traveling with not only infants, but now teenage girls, older girls. And through her own experience, she had some great tips for families traveling. Travelers just have to have understanding for parents who have to travel with kids. They have a lot more that's on them. And I think as we sit in planes where babies are crying and doing things that might be personally upsetting, uh, we just have to remember we were all that age too. And to just cut families slack and just understand that they're under tremendous stress and, and pressure. Indeed, and can you imagine, we don't have children, but we have Erwin, our, our cat, and the entire plane would probably need a sedative if, if we traveled with him, so um, a child might be easier for us. Speaking of easy, the attractions that we were able to see in New York City with uh, City Pass, was it, did that surprise you, how the ease and comfort of which we were able to really jump the queue, get ahead of hundreds of people save hours uh, from queuing and, and even a lot of money. Yeah, it was really an enriching experience. And we saw things in New York that we really hadn't experienced. And so it was nice to be able to see the the attractions that define the city to so much of the world and be able to do so in an efficient, economical way that really made you feel as if, wow, I can say I've been to New York and I've seen and I've done these things and I think City Pass does a great job in allowing travelers to see those places. And another thing I appreciate was Jonathan Gelhart's portrayal of China. I happen to love China, as you know, babe, um, all the time that I've spent uh, studying in China and traveling to China and I really appreciate where he came from, you know, his first perceptions um, to the the stories that he wanted to share. And one of the things that I loved so much about the Chinese, uh, first, I think you would be a rock star there as you were in Russia. They, they're very taken by, uh, intrigued by people of color, but they also really loved people with milky white skin. They um, And a lot of times they would follow me um, and a girlfriend, if we were in a department store shopping, uh, we'd have people following us around. And we used to have something called English Speaking Corner, where we would meet with students at the law university where we studied uh, a couple of times a week just to talk about American culture. And so they, they were very, very intrigued um, and, and interested in, in learning more about Western culture. I am looking forward to that trip to China at some point. I've I've read about China. I've studied it in political science and in business school. So I really am looking forward to the opportunity to really go there and see this country. As we close, we'd like to leave you with a quote from Miriam Baird. Certainly, travel is more than the scene of sights. It is a change that goes on deep and permanent 
in the ideas of living. Thank you for inviting us into your home to share the joys of our world. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.